Hey, this is John from pureandsimplebible.com. Welcome back to the part two of a very exciting mini-series on abstaining from alcohol. Now, last week, Aubrey Ballard and I discussed eight key scriptures in the New Testament that help us understand that a Christian just needs to stay away from the stuff. But there are people who might have some objections, and maybe they consider uh, the scriptures we've used or others and, and try to bring up a point to advocate for why they can socially drink or do so in a way that they're not just going to get flat out drunk. But you know what? The Bible is pure and simple in what it teaches. And so what we'd like to do today is hear some of those objections raised and then answer them from the scriptures. So will you join us? Here we go. Hopefully these will be encouraging and inspiring to overcome those temptations. But in the back of people's minds are probably some objections. I've, I've had conversations about some of these, and I'm sure you have as well. And so maybe I'd like to assume that role now. So I will uh, state these objections, and I'd like to hear from the Scriptures and from reason why they're not as uh, maybe as valid as, as people might think. Let's, let's go to maybe the, the most common one, and that is that Jesus changed water into wine, and that's in, in John chapter 2. And so uh, the thought is, you know, he, he didn't, uh, or rather he demonstrated that it's uh, okay to drink wine in non-medicinal ways. So it kind of counters the thought that we previously mentioned about Timothy drinking a little wine for his uh, infirmities, and that's the only reason. So how would you respond when somebody says, ah, Jesus changed water into wine, so I can do it too? Well, you're right. This is probably the most common argument people make, and uh, my favorite version of it, somebody said to me one time, you know, Aubrey, Jesus turned water into wine, not Welch's. <laughs> and it sounds straightforward enough. Jesus made it. He gave it to these people at the wedding, so that right there implicitly shows that it's okay to drink. Right. But even though the argument sounds simple, there are a lot of underlying assumptions that are just that. They're assumptions, and I'd like to show you know, kind of what those are and that they're not actually true. Okay. First of all, Jesus, the, the assumption is made that Jesus turned the water into alcoholic wine. Now, somebody who's not familiar with, with this might say, well, of course, what other kind of wine is there? Because in our language, in our culture, that's exactly what we mean when we talk about right. wine. It's grape juice that's gone through the fermentation process, and it's by nature alcoholic. But what people have to understand, and th this information is available to those who are willing to look into it, uh, and that is that the Bible uses wine to mean both fermented or alcoholic drinks and unfermented, non-alcoholic drinks. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can know which type is in view is by the context of the passage. That's how right. you know what kind of wine is under consideration. Right. Um, an example of this would be in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8. And the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and uh -huh. one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake that I may not destroy them all. Okay. Well, according to this passage, if I take a cluster of grapes, I pick them off the vine, and squeeze them, right. the liquid that comes out is called new wine. Right. Now, if you and I actually did that today. That's not what we would call it. We would just call it grape juice. But in Bible days, that was called new wine. Mm -hmm. Now, in this passage, it's pretty clear that 
can't be referring to intoxicating drink, right? But it's referring to that fresh grape juice straight out of the cluster. So, as far as I can tell, in the Bible, there are thirteen words that are translated wine. In the uh, Hebrew, there's eleven words, and in the Greek, there's two. So, if the word wine always meant alcoholic beverages, then why would there be thirteen words in the original language? Uh, see, wine can sometimes mean an intoxicating drink, and sometimes it means a non-intoxicating drink. So it might be helpful to go through and look at some examples of passages where it's used in both ways. So you have to be true to context. You can't just pull something out. And I think that's going to be helpful, especially to Christians who want to be consistent with their faith. You know, If they're wanting to engage in social drinking, they're trying to find a reason for it, they're going to have to pull something out of context and if they want to be consistent, then they need to add context and not just point at a word and say, look, it says wine right there. I like that. So there's a lot of other passages in the Old Testament, Jonathan, that illustrate this where, you know, the word wine is used and it's obviously referring to a non-alcoholic grape juice, you know, uh, wine coming straight out of the wine press, which is, of course, where they would, you know, tread down and step on the grapes with their feet and the grape juice would come out and they called that wine. Right. But a good rule of thumb to remember just to point a reader in the right direction is to say that whenever the Bible says something good about wine, it's always talking about non-intoxicating wine. That is grape juice. Mm -hmm. But whenever the Bible says something bad about wine and its effects, then it's talking about fermented hmm. grape juice or alcoholic okay. wine. Now, isn't there a scripture in the Old Testament as well uh, that talks about not getting your neighbor drunk? And so if Jesus had turned it into alcoholic wine, then he would have been breaking the some commands from the old law, right? That's exactly right. And that's a, a tremendous point to make because this illustrates the principle of, of logic and argumentation that if your point proves too much, it proves nothing at all. So, so let's wrap our minds around the claim that's being made. Jesus is at this wedding. It's a party. We've already read a verse, haven't we, about drinking parties? Mm -hmm. And so Jesus makes this volume of wine that's enough for everybody at this party. If this verse proves that we can drink a little bit in moderation, you know, uh, socially, just as long as we don't get drunk, then it also proves that we can go and we can participate in drinking parties. Right. Because right. that's exactly what would have been going on. That's a good point. But but you're right. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 12, which is uh, part of the Old Testament law that Jesus lived under, we know that Jesus never committed any sin. Uh, it says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. And so... If you were to give somebody enough drink that could you know, potentially make them drunk, that was a sin. So Jesus could not have possibly done what so many people automatically assume that he did when he turned this water into wine at, at the drinking party. Now, saying that, some people respond with, well, what's the point of the story then? Um, and I think people need to remember that turning water into pure grape juice is just as much of a miracle as turning water into alcoholic wine. That's a good point. Nothing in the story is lost, um, but but some people act like it wouldn't be any miracle at all. And there's a, a wonderful and deep, rich meaning to this passage that we won't get into right now. But for now, I think we've shown that it's contrary to Bible teaching to assume and believe that Jesus would have turned water into this much alcoholic wine for this many people to consume in this setting. 
Well, I think that if you can answer that argument, which you've effectively done, most of the rest of them are going to wash away. But I'd like to ask maybe a few more uh, in case there are others out there who have additional concerns about taking this position of, of completely abstaining from alcohol. You know, the Bible says in many times that Jesus ate and drank with sinners. And uh, in, in doing so, could we then um, prove that he's demonstrating that it's okay to drink for non-medicinal purposes, that you can just casually drink whenever you're uh, having dinner with friends or something like that, since Jesus ate and drank with sinners? Right. Well, uh, one of the times that Jesus pointed this out was in Luke chapter 7 and verse uh, 33 through 35 when he showed that basically the people who were going to reject his teachings were, were never happy. They weren't happy with John the Baptist. They weren't happy with him. They thought John the Baptist was crazy because they said uh, he came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. Mm-hmm. And so they all said, well, he has a demon. So Jesus said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So so obviously what these people said about Jesus wasn't true. Right. What they said about John the Baptist wasn't true. But what some people believe they see here is that there's evidence that Jesus at least drank some alcoholic wine. In other words, there was some truth to what they were saying, and they were just exaggerating. In other words, right. there would have been no basis for this claim that Jesus was um, a, a drunkard and a wine-bibber unless he was at least drinking a little bit of non-alcoholic wine. Hmm. Well, okay. uh, rather, of a little bit of alcoholic wine, I should say. Well... I think it's important to understand uh, a little bit about the the context and and John and who and what he was. John, um, maybe not as famously as Samson, but John was actually a Nazarite from the day of his birth. According to Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. Now, a Nazarite, in short, wasn't supposed to eat or drink anything that was produced from the grapevine. They weren't supposed to touch it. Um, Now, in Numbers chapter 6, this is really interesting. In verse 3, it says, Neither shall he drink any grape juice, hmm. nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. So it wasn't just that the Nazarite couldn't drink alcoholic wine. They couldn't even eat, uh, drink grape juice. Right, right. And so here comes John. He's neither you know, eating with people at these um, social functions, and he's not drinking wine. He's actually not even drinking grape juice. So there's an example of the word being used uh, for non-alcoholic wine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, they just didn't like that. They said, well, he must have a demon. (laughs) Well, Jesus, on the other hand, was not a Nazarite. So he ate with people, as you've pointed out, and he drank. He probably drank water, and he drank grape juice, and he drank other things. And, well, they said, well, he's a a wine-bibber. And it just was an unfair assumption that they were making. They they were saying that Jesus was a drunkard, that he was a wine drinker. He was no more a wine-bibber than he was a glutton. Right. If he was guilty of one, he was guilty of the other, but we know that he was actually guilty of neither. That's a good point to bring out. Is Again, you got to be true to the context. If he's going to be guilty of one, he's going to be guilty of the other. But two, people that are making that argument are actually siding with the Pharisees. <laughs> you know, They're wanting to find some sort of proof text to give them the ability to drink alcohol, and that means they're using the Pharisees' accusation as proof. I don't want to line up with the Pharisees against Jesus. You know, that's that's terrifying. And so I'm not going to use this as a 
as a way to prove that I could drink socially. There, there's a lot more we could say on that one. I'm looking at some of the notes, and there's just several, several points that need to be made. Hopefully these will be enough for now, and if there's more, uh, people can email me, and I'd love to share them with you. I'm thinking about in 1 Timothy 3, verse uh, 8, about uh, one of the offices of church work, the deacon, the deaconship. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, deacons are told not to be given to much wine. And, uh, you know, I think this could, if I was to take this line of thinking, if I was trying to advocate for drinking some alcohol, that if I'm not given much wine, it implies that I can be given to a little wine. In the same way that Timothy was uh, to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake, well, at least they can drink a little wine. It's just they can't be given much wine. How would you respond to that? Well, in my own personal conversations with people, this is the second most common argument I hear. And this one... Uh, from people within the Lord's church. So this is one that I think we need to be very careful about. Um, I've heard it phrased this way, every word of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, that premise is true. Mm -hmm. And so the next premise is, the word much here has to be here for a reason. That's also true. But then the conclusion that people will draw is, it must be here to imply what you've just said, that a little bit is okay. Right. And that's the premise or the conclusion that I disagree with. Uh, and I think the Bible makes it clear. What, what people are saying is that the uh, prohibition of excess um, means that a little bit is okay. And, and that's just not true. I have uh, several passages in, in my own Bible, I've written these down, that are similar to this one in that the, the Bible condemns excess of something, right? But nobody would argue that uh, a moderate amount of that thing is okay. The first one is a passage that we've already read, Jonathan. It's in First Peter chapter four. Let me reread verses three and four, and then point out a couple of key phrases. Uh, you remember he said that we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, the word drunkenness there means an excess of wine. Mm -hmm. So he's saying that an excess of wine is not okay. But we also talked about um, the casual drinking there. The word uh, revelries and drinking parties are also there. And we've talked about what those words mean. Right. But to make it even more clear, you go to verse 4. And he says, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Mm flood of dissipation. So what we find here is that Christians were not engaging in the same overflow or flood of, of dissipation, and non-believers thought that was strange. So does that, you know, every word of Scripture is there for a reason. Does the word flood in this passage indicate that it was okay if it was just a trickle, if it was just <laughs> a little bit? Right. Uh, and the obvious answer is no. James chapter 1 and verse 21 has the phrase, excess of riot. Mm, right. And so we can't engage in an excess of riot. So does that mean right. we can engage in a little bit of riot? And there are others. There's a, th that same principle as what we talked previously about with being temperate. You know, I'm, I'm going to be temperate in lust. Of course that doesn't work. I'm going to be temperate in wrath. So I, I get that principle. Do you have another scripture you want to share before we move on? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 16, says... Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? 
Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? So whatever that passage means would probably be interesting to cover in, in another uh, podcast. But for our purposes today, we know that when he says, do not be overly wicked, that yeah. he's certainly not saying, but be a little bit wicked, and that's okay. Right. So passages that condemn excess do not imply mm-hmm. that a little bit is okay. And when you get right down to it, that's what people are saying or assuming about this passage. And um, that's an assumption, and it would have to be proven. So just from a purely like logical standpoint, Jonathan, uh, I don't have to really respond to that argument in a sense, uh, but maybe I should ask a question. I should ask somebody to give more evidence that that's what it means. But for, for the sake of fairness and, and honesty and being open, we do want to respond to the passage, and we, we want people to know what's being talked about there. I think the emphasis needs to be shown that it's on the word given, which means addicted. And so what it's saying is that deacons aren't to be addicted to much wine. Now, if I'm addicted to something or given to it, naturally it's to much of whatever it is I'm addicted to. So this superlative, this word much, doesn't indicate that it's okay to be addicted to a little bit. Right. If you focus on that word given, you see what the intent of the passage is. And, and again, what proves too much proves too little. This passage right. cannot right. be saying that it's okay to be addicted to a little bit of wine, mm-hmm. but just don't be addicted to much wine. Okay. Well, um, you know, maybe they're going to go to a different passage. Maybe you're, you're able to you know, successfully uh, defend what 1 Timothy 3.8 is saying. But what about Romans 14.21? You know, here it kind of looks like Paul is implying that wine may be consumed, that it's part of the Christian liberty. And I'll read it. It says, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And now in this scripture, he's talking about giving things up for our brethren's sake who have a weak conscience. And he uses some of these as an example. So if we didn't have brethren around who had a weak conscience then could we drink alcohol? Well, Jonathan, uh, we've talked before about the value of answering a question with a question. If we're really having a conversation with somebody about this, uh, one of the ways to help them see one of the important points we've been making throughout this conversation is is to maybe ask, what kind of wine is he talking about Mm -hmm. here? You Mm -hmm. see, because the assumption that people probably don't even realize they're making is that he must be talking about fermented alcoholic wine. Yeah. But we've already shown that wine can be used and often is used to refer only to to grape juice. Now, but that brings up a follow-up question. If Romans 14:21 is just talking about grape juice, then how could drinking plain grape juice cause anyone to stumble or or be offended or, or made weak? Uh, and I think there's a clear answer to that. The answer is the same way that eating meat could cause someone to sin. Right. Uh, you see, in the context, this is talking about uh, food that's been sacrificed to idols and then drink offerings or liquid libations that have been used in sacrifices to idols mm-hmm. where they would pour mm-hmm. them out in worship to the idol. Um, these are mentioned in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 37 and, and verse 38. The Lord will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Right. 
Right. So he's rhetorically showing that these idols were nothing, but in doing so, he is referring to this practice of the, the drink offering that was made to the idol. So the point of Romans 14, 21 is that if anything is used in pagan worship and thereby causes someone to get weak, well, I won't even do that. Even if in and of itself it's harmless, I won't eat meat. I won't even drink grape juice because what's important is helping my brother. Yeah, I like that a lot. The The context of Romans 14 comes a whole lot clearer, and that argument is just incredibly weak whenever you consider its context. We've got two more that I think we can get through real quick. Um, you know, we've talked some about new wine, you know, in the Old Testament talking about uh, in, in some of those uh, scriptures where they were squeezing the new wine out of the cluster of grapes, etc., but in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, the apostles are accused of being drunk on new wine. And so I, I don't know if I've ever heard this one other than in theory. I've never heard somebody say it who genuinely believed it, but it's still worthy of consideration. The new wine that they're accused of being drunk with, could that be a reason that we could uh, drink alcohol because they were able to get drunk technically on new wine? Well, this is a lot like the um, accusation against Jesus of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. People are assuming that this senseless and basic, baseless accusation against the apostles must have at least some seed of truth to it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it in the first place. But consider that the conclusion that they came to was, was foolish because alcoholic wine doesn't make it possible for people to speak in new languages they've never studied. Right. Someone might argue, well, you know, um, I guess alcoholic wine is able to make people speak in different languages because these people here said, you know, they're full of new wine, and that was right. their explanation. So that that's silly. In fact, it does the opposite. It, it slurs the one language that you might be able to speak <laughs> right. to begin with. So new wine, as it's used in the New Testament, doesn't make anyone drunk. This is sort of um, reaching uh, to try to find a passage that, that justifies it. New wine is defined um, by various authors as sweet new wine or the must, the sweet juice pressed from the grape, sweet wine, according to Thayer. Hmm. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of Old Testament passages that uh, describe this type of wine, and maybe just a sampling of them here would be helpful okay. to illustrate the point. Sure. In Judges chapter 9 and verse 13, uh, we have, But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? You know, someone might say here, Oh, look, it produces cheer. That's talking about the, the, the cheer and the lack of inhibitions that you know, alcohol brings about. But this is clearly talking about what comes out of the vine, what comes out of the right. grape. And that's called right. new wine. That's grape okay. juice. Proverbs 3.10 talks about their vats overflowing with with new wine. And uh, Isaiah 65 and verse 8 talks about the new wine that's found in the cluster. So consistently throughout the scriptures, uh, new wine is used to talk about grape juice. And so even though, you know, we have all these examples of new wine being about grape juice, the people in Acts 2 obviously are using it to refer to alcoholic wine. But like you mentioned previously, if we are aligning ourselves with them to try to make a valid point about how we can drink alcohol, we're putting ourselves on the side opposite of the apostles and on the side with people who are accusing them maliciously and have no ground to stand on. So that's, for me, a very compelling response is, do I want 
to use the enemy of the apostles as proof for me drinking alcohol? The rhetorical answer should obviously be no. For our final um, objection, let's consider the Lord's Supper. You know, there are many groups who use fermented wine uh, for the the uh, element at the Lord's table that represents the blood of Christ. And so uh, people might say uh, that wine must be used in communion. And therefore, if it's acceptable to drink in communion, then it's acceptable for a Christian to drink a little bit of alcohol. Uh, I personally don't know anyone who's made that accusation, but let's consider this theoretical argument. You're right. Um, okay, so theoretically, someone says wine must be used in, in communion. Uh, first of all, fermented wine was not used in communion, according to the Bible, and there's not a single passage that ever says that Jesus used fermented wine. In fact, in the Lord's Supper passages where Jesus instituted the supper, uh, it's never referred to as wine. Instead, the expression is always the fruit of the vine. Right. So that in and of itself is compelling evidence to show that, that Jesus did not do that and we're not required to nor allowed to. But think about this. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper or the communion during the Jewish Passover. Uh, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He answered to them, um, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So this is when the Lord's Supper was instituted during the observance of Passover. Now, Whenever God's people ate the Passover and observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were some rules. Mm -hmm. And if you've you know, read through your Bible all the way through or listened carefully to sermons, you've probably heard this referred to at some point or another. Uh, specifically, the rules were very explicit in stating that all leaven had to be removed from the house. Right. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 19, it says, For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leaven that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So, if you were listening carefully, you heard him not only say that you can't eat anything leavened during the feast, but no leaven shall be found in your houses. Someone might wonder, how does that relate to, to grape juice? Well, fermented wine is leavened grape juice. It's gone through the fermentation process. And uh, so we can know for a fact that no fermented wine was used when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And in fact, it wouldn't have even been in the house mm -hmm. to begin with. Mm -hmm. So uh, keep keep this in mind. I'm, I'm simply discussing what the Bible says. I'm not talking about what uh, an Orthodox Jew today might say. Right. They might say there was all kinds of things in the house. And if you want to know what Jews do today, then you can go ask somebody um, who has that practice. But if, if we're talking about what the Bible says and what the Lord authorized, then we just need to open our Bibles and see what it says. Amen. Um, now keep in mind that the Jews rejected their own law and their own Savior as a people. And so looking to, to Jewish writers to discover how people observe the Passover really uh, is unreasonable to do. Jesus said that uh, they, the Jews, did many things that were contrary to the law of God, Matthew chapter 15 and, and verse 9. So it, it might be important to remember that in the Passover, in the Bible, uh, there was no drink element 
prescribed. And so it certainly didn't authorize the consumption of, of leavened wine right. during the Passover or any other time. Jesus just used grape juice. In Matthew 26 and 29, he said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Fruit of the vine is just talking about what it sounds like. It's right. just fruit which is produced on the vine. And uh, so what is fruit that's produced on the vine, produced when you squeeze it? Mm-hmm. Is it fermented when it comes mm-hmm. out? No, it's there's not a vine on earth that's ever done that. The, the vine just produces grape juice, and that's what Jesus used. Well, brother, when we look at these uh, arguments, I think they all crumble whenever you want to, when you consider the Word, when you consider the context to the Word, and the reasonableness of the arguments themselves. There's nothing that stands against what the Scripture says on it. I guess I'd like to offer you a chance for a closing statement, but before you do, I'd like to take the time uh, to any of our listeners who happen to have a struggle with alcohol. If this is a temptation for you, or if you are the type of a person who uh, maybe uh, you frequently get drunk on your own, and you're not around anybody, and you're saying that it doesn't hurt anybody, I'm just by myself, I've I know when to drink and when I'm not to. I hope that the Word has the ability to convict you. And I want you to know a couple things. First, you're not the first person who has ever struggled with this temptation, and it can be overcome. And I'd like to encourage you to engage members of your congregation to first confess your sin, secondly, to have accountability to overcome this. And if you are interested but not sure who to talk to, you can reach out to me pureandsimplebible at gmail.com, and I can get you started in the right direction. But secondly, if you find that you're tempted, but maybe you haven't given in to that temptation yet, you also need to know that you're not alone, that there are many of us, and I do include myself in that, many of us who either are or have been tempted to drink for many reasons. But we can overcome it through the power of Jesus Christ, through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit has given, and through the fellowship and the comfort that we have in one another in the church. So reach out. Don't hold on to this alone and be ashamed that you're tempted in such a way, but find somebody who can hold you accountable to live righteously and soberly. Brother, do you want to close? Do you have any uh, closing you'd like to... I'm going to say the word close a thousand times. Do you have any final thoughts before we close? Maybe I could just review a few things to give our listeners some some takeaways that they can remember. Sure. And then a couple of uh, recommendations for um, church leaders and teachers on this subject. Um, We need to remember that there's not a single New Testament passage that allows for the use of alcohol for recreational purposes. In fact, only a little amount may be used medicinally. Uh, Romans 13 and 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. In this passage, uh, and Jonathan, you've made this clear already, but the same prohibition that's placed on revelry and on lewdness is also placed on drunkenness. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that we can't revel moderately, and we know that we uh, can't lust or be lewd moderately, because the condemnation of excess doesn't mean that, that moderation is allowed. Right. And, and the reason we emphasize this is because what you think affects what you do. And we want people to have correct knowledge because if a person believes that the Scriptures authorize um, you know, so the non-medicinal use of alcohol for recreational purposes or social purposes, um, that might put them in a position where um, 
they use it, and that could lead to other things. It's it's a sin to use it in and of itself. Right. But we know that alcohol destroys people's lives. It destroys families. It, mm-hmm. it absolutely wrecks the home and mm-hmm. leads to other sins, and uh, it has led to people's uh, deaths. And so, uh, sometimes an artificial distinction is made between, you know. Uh, drinking but not getting drunk and and that being okay and us being able to control that but I would urge the listener to view alcohol and its effects the same way that God does it's something that will destroy lives and in order to live a a sober life and a self-controlled life that's pleasing to God and beneficial to our fellow man I'd urge you to consider the teachings of the scripture on this subject I think I want to say one word to Uh, parents and church leaders and and people who have an influence over those who are younger. Uh, If we hold to the moderate usage position and we teach our kids uh, to drink but not get drunk, or we have church members who we encourage to uh, refrain from getting drunk but it's okay to drink, then we might find ourselves um, inadvertently and unintentionally encouraging people to do something that can absolutely destroy their lives. That's right. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6 and 7, we're cautioned about making one of these little ones stumble. It says, Offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Mm. I can't think of a single good thing that has ever come from somebody using alcohol recreationally. Not one single thing. In, in view of all of the negative things that the Bible says about it, yeah, and the complete lack of any positive things that the Bible says about it. How could someone make a case that it's okay, much less encourage someone Mm -hmm. else to continue in that practice? Mm -hmm. The Bible says, don't even look at it. And I would encourage our listeners to obey that. Those who I have studied with and worked with who have been confessed alcoholics, who have gone to seek professional treatment and have overcome the addiction, whether they've been sober for 10 years or whether they've been sober for just a couple months, every single one of them will tell you that they don't even they don't even take a drop. They don't want to take a drop because they know where it goes. And those who have, have been in the darkest pit of alcohol addiction know that it's not worth moderate drinking because of how much it has ruined their life in the past and the lives of others around them. If anything, we could take their advice alongside what the scriptures have said and see that it's not worth it. It is just not worth it. Well, brother, I want to thank you for coming on and discussing this with me. I hope that people will consider the scriptures in this Bible chain, that they will meditate on the arguments that some people give and how they don't really stand up to what the scriptures have to say. And uh, anyway, I hope that you are blessed in your ministry, and I look forward to the next time that we get together. I will too, Jonathan. Thank you. I want to thank Aubrey for coming on the show. He's one of my dearest friends, and I'm so thankful for the work that he does with the congregation out in Tyler, Texas. Thank you, brother. Until next time, I invite you to go to the website. Consider resources there. There's other podcast episodes. There's videos. There's study content all for you to use and download absolutely free. Until we meet again, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much. And I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true.
about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me.